You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. You know, guys, so uh, again, kind of thinking back uh, as I was preparing this uh, message for this morning, thinking through the arc of the storyline of Mercy's Door and the arc of the storyline of my prayer life. Like the Lord, the seasonally, the Lord does things in the pastors of the church. Uh, and it, it, really, as you turn the corner into a new year, this is one of the times where he'll do that, where you just kind of go open-handedly before the Lord, and you say, Lord, like, what do you have for us right now? What do you have for me as an individual? What do you have for your church? What are you doing? Because like I said, you can get into a rhythm of just doing things that you've just always done and start to forget why you're doing them. And so the Lord very specifically has been dealing with me, just encouraging me that right now he wants to address my prayer life. And if he's going to address mine and then put me in front of you, he's going to address yours too, right? And so uh, as I talk to him through that, you know, I, and, and I think through the storyline of this church, and the, the, like I said, the last time we went through a gospel account, we have to remember that, like, we didn't get here overnight where we are today, and we don't get where we're going overnight. That we, if we lose some sense that the engine that drives the ministry of the church, that drives the life of the church is prayer, that the very power by which we do anything in the church is prayer, then before long we just reduce the church to a series of gatherings and activities, right? And so the Lord has just really been saying to me, like, He wants to lead me back into a place of desperate dependence on prayer. Dependence on prayer flows out of something, and Paul addresses it right here in his first sentence. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And I think that when we read this, that when we hear a sentence like this, to rejoice in the Lord always, the first thing instinct we have is to want to say back to Paul, like, you must not know my life. If you're calling me to rejoice always, Paul, you must not really know my life. Rejoice always? Have you seen this week, Paul? I can assure you that Paul knows what he's saying when he says this, you know, we're here at the end of the letter to the Philippians, but just within this letter to the Philippians, beginning from the very entry of the, of the letter, Paul is telling the Philippian church all about what his life has looked like lately. In chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he mentions at the onset of his letter, yep, you've probably heard I'm in prison. I can confirm I am in prison. But I've seen that it has, been, has served only to advance the gospel. A little further on, he says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Like, oh, he's saying, I know I'm going to make it out of prison. He says, no, I know, I have the full courage now as always that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. He says, I'm in prison, and no, I can't say for sure whether or not I will live or I will die. So this will turn out for my deliverance, meaning either the shackles will come off or I'll die, and I will be delivered either way. So he has said to the Philippian church, I'm in chains, 
My life is not even certain, but for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Further on, he says that he, say, he, commend, he commands them and says, I do not want you to be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So, the tenor throughout this letter, which is called the letter of joy, he says rejoice like 10 million times, and he's going to say it a bunch in this passage. This letter of joy is, I'm in prison, my life is not sure, yes, opposition is rising up against you, and uh, you must suffer as you follow Christ. So he is 100% acknowledging that circumstantially you may have very little reason to rejoice. And it's super important, I think, that we like sit in that for a minute this morning because reflecting back on even the earliest days of this church it's not hard for me to remember days of suffering like this or to recognize that we are often in times of suffering like that you know pastor michael talked about this you know the the pressure cooking of marriages over the last couple of years or just how things are just generally hard right now and when we came down here originally in the you know very infancy of this church we had left everything behind for the sake of Christ. You know, my wife and I had left a home that we loved, the close proximity to our friends and our family, walked away from a career that I'd worked really hard for, moved down here away from all of that to be a part of just seeing the Lord moving in a new way. I had started up my own little business as a recruiter, uh, headhunting for tech startups in Chicago. wanted that flexibility so that I could make myself available to the ministry. had never done anything like that before, but I had seen some people do it successfully. I was trusting in the Lord. And in the first year, all was well, for the most part, lonely, hard, but okay. And then year two, my father dies rapidly. It's a pancreatic cancer. My wife receives a diagnosis of lupus, which explains the chronic pain that she'd been in. And this is layered on top of a chronic metabolic kidney condition that she had already had. And so it's just a, like suffering upon suffering with my wife's pain. She's medicated now in some ways that help a lot. And I fall into a depression as my wife is sick and my father has passed that makes it so that I just cannot will myself to close deals at all in this business that I started so that I'm going months and months without bringing in any income from my family. We've got no benefits or whatever. And I look up, having walked away from a really cozy situation up in Chicago to come down here and be a part of this. And my wife is sick and my father is dead. My business has failed. My bank account's empty. At one point, we're like a month away from not knowing how we're going to pay rent. I'm buying groceries on a credit card. And I'm gathering people in my home weekly in gospel community and exalting the riches of the mercy of Christ Jesus. Where somehow the only joy in this period of my life is seeing what I'm saying to God, God, what have I done? And he's saying, Adam, look what I've done. As I look out at you guys and I see a story of redemption spilling out over the streets of Mascuda and Onscott Air Force Base and seeing people entrust the corners of their life to the Lordship of Christ, 100% worth it and then some, but my life absolutely steeped and marked by prayer, desperate prayer, 
Lord, you've got to show up. You must be enough. And these prayers were not things like, Lord, fix my circumstances. You've got you to hear me. This is, Lord, if by my life or by my death, Lord, if by my suffering or by my prosperity, Christ may be exalted in my life, Lord, let that be the cry of my heart. Don't let me run from you, Lord, to return to earthly comfort. Hold on to me. I heard you. This is what Paul is saying when he says, rejoice in the Lord always. You want to know how you can rejoice always? It's the drumbeat of mercy's door. It has been from the very beginning of this church for good reason. It's written in the stories and the storylines of the pastors of the church and the planters of this church, that original core group of 12 people, that as they desperately clung to Jesus with no certainty that this thing was going to go anywhere, that he showed himself to be faithful, that we rejoiced in him. And so we've said to you guys as a drumbeat, year by year by year, like every other sermon we say to you, that your satisfaction is not found in your lateral circumstances, it is found in the Lord. That if you are looking to your circumstances for your joy, satisfaction, and security, they will always fail you, but he never will. How can you rejoice always in, always? You can, you can rejoice always by rejoicing in the Lord. This is the linchpin. If you highlight, circle, or, or underline in your Bible, you want to circle verse 4, in the Lord. And then he doubles down and says, again, I will say, Rejoice, And this is future tense. He's saying, again, I, I'm going to say it again and again and again. I'm going to keep on saying, Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice. And we want to notice that this sentence of the scriptures comes right after he has just talked about Yodia and Syntyche and Clement and his other fellow workers. He's talking about some specific la fellow laborers in the faith. And he says of them, whose names are in the book of life. That's how verse 3 ends. Whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. When we hear that term, Paul referencing their names being written in the book of life immediately before calling everyone to rejoice, we should immediately jump into the gospel when Jesus talked about our names being written in the book of life, he had just finished talking to his disciples and said to them, guys, you are going to have ministry success. You are going to go, you're going to cast out demons in my name. You're going to heal people in my name. People are going to come to faith in masses. But do not rejoice that I have told you these things. Rejoice that your names have been written in the book of life. That's what Jesus had to say to his disciples after telling them that all kinds of things were going to go really well. He says, rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. This is the foundation for prayer. We're going to get to prayer in just the next, the next two verses, but heading up on the front end of his call to buy all things to pray, to bring our request to the Lord, is this reminder, this assurance, rejoice. Your name is in the book of life. Guys, your eternal security is squarely in the palm of the hand of your God. You cannot lose it. You cannot do anything to wriggle free from it because of the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Yes, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. He has overcome the world. And so when you look around you and your circumstances are going to hell, you can fix your eyes on Jesus and say, by life or by death, I will spend eternity with him. This is the impetus for prayer for Paul here. He says, let your, verse 5, let your reasonableness 
be known to everyone. I, I think that a better translation of the word reasonableness here is gentleness. Something like, I, I read that something like 60 or 70% of the time that word is used as gentleness, sometimes as reasonableness, because they're very similar words. The idea here, you could picture like a, trying to maybe spoon feed peas to a baby, and he knocks it over and throws the peas everywhere, and he, he just, just be reasonable, just be reasonable, be gentle. Right? It's, it's dealing with how we respond to the, to the things that come against us, right? Our, to be reasonable is to be non-quarrelsome, to be agreeable, to be peaceable, to be gentle, understanding, merciful, gracious. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, verse 6, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So I noticed that Paul kind of does a wordplay here. He does it a lot because he's just such a good writer. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And the next sentence says, and let your requests be made known to God. He's linking these two ideas together. That as you live life among other people, non-believers and believers alike, and you are gentle with them, in other words, as you release them from the responsibility to offer you security and significance and all of those kind of things, and you are able to be non-confrontational because you do not need from them the things that you have received amply from the Lord because your name is written in the book of life. As you release others from having to meet the needs of your life that Jesus Christ has personally met himself and invited you into for eternity, you're able to be gentle and let it be made known to others. And this is a command, this is an imperative from Paul. He's telling us we must make it known to everyone. This is a public thing that you are to be known and marked by your gentleness because it tells the true story of what you have received. He says the reason why you can do that by linking it, he's saying the reason why you're able to be gentle and publicly gentle with others is because when it comes to the requests of your heart, you're making those known to God. You understand? So I'm not, I'm not coming to you with the things that belong to God. I'm going to God with those things. And this is where we start to enter into the topic of prayer. When you pray, you do two things, and maybe this is what I'd have you write down in this sermon, okay? The first thing you do is you declare war against the lies of your enemy who wants desperately for you to believe that you're an orphan. Every single time that you walk into the throne room of grace, that you boldly, like a child, just walk up to your father and talk to him, you are acting like a child. You're telling the truth about your status as a kingdom kid. Every single time you pray, you are declaring over the sins of the world, over the lies of your enemy, over Satan himself, and everybody who would have you doubt, I'm his. I talk to him, and he hears me, and he delights to listen. When you pray, you declare over your own soul, I belong to the Lord. That's number one. And number two, when you go to the Lord and you pray, and you give your request to him, you are acknowledging your weakness and your need, also telling the truth. I cannot do this on my own. Not my will, but yours, Father. You act like a child just in the fact that you're even in the room with him, and you act like a child when you say to him, you just know better than I do, Dad. I need your help. 
And in making your requests made known to God, you are then able to make your gentleness known to others. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. But it's interesting that he, that he attaches this to the claim that the Lord is at hand. The Lord being at hand is a central piece to prayer also, okay? There's a lot of ways we can look at that, but what Paul meant and what he taught regularly was that the return of the Lord was imminent, that he is at hand. And sometimes we were like, okay, he wrote that 2,000 years ago, Adam, can't mean that his return is imminent. And I, I still mean, as I preach this, his return is imminent. There was a message that I had heard, a little lesson that a pastor I loved was teaching where he talked about the nearness of the Lord. And he talks about the idea of the, uh, the, that Jesus being at hand like this. It was a word picture that was helpful to me. He says, imagine that there's a city that is surrounded by a great army and the general is at the gate. And everybody in the city can see him and can see every and can see that his victory is sure. That the city is his for the taking, and when he says the word, he will storm the gates and take it at his, at his discretion. There's nothing that you can do about it he, because you can see him right there. That's what it means for the Lord to be at hand. As like a great general right at the gate, sin and death and darkness and everything is trembling knowing that at any moment that we will hear a trumpet sound and jesus will say enough guys enough this was what caused paul to rejoice at his chains at his imminent death at his opposition at his persecution guys it's not that your circumstances would be made better it's that our circumstances would be made perfect because the Lord is at hand. And in light of that, it's that Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Anxiety would be to suggest that we, have, we don't know how the story ends. He's just saying, you do, you do, and take heart in that. And in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, verse 7, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, this morning I talked to you guys a little bit about the difficulties that my wife struggles with. And as a pastor in this church who's like involved in a lot of different ministry corners in this church, I get to see a lot of different things, but one of the most magnificent things that I get to witness is actually just as a husband to my wife. She's got her own little ministry thing going, just loving women and loving children, right? And what I have seen happen in the lives of, some, some of you guys even know who you are as I say this, as you share a coffee or a living room with my wife knowing that she's in pain, that even being here right now is hard, right? Like in those moments where her weakness is very loud, but her gentleness, dependence on the Lord in prayer is great, and that there is a, a peace over her that surpasses understanding, that you experience Jesus, not my wife or any of her strength, or you experience Jesus in a unique way. And I have watched women and children flourish in the Lord in the company of my wife, not because she's doing anything from her strength, but because she is boasting in her weakness, right? This is Paul. 
To live is Christ, and to die is gain. That by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we make our needs known to God, and his peace, which surpasses understanding, guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. This is who we want to be. It's this gentleness that Paul commands us into. And he says, finally, brothers, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul has just attached to our prayer life, our thought life, What is it that he calls us to dwell on? Anything that is these things. Like he's getting into the intimate details of the way that we engage our thoughts. This is so important. Like we simply cannot pray honestly with the Lord unless we are honest with our thoughts. And we can tell what our thought life is like by our actions. And so Paul knows that he can't call us into the the action of gentleness or a dependency in prayer unless he addresses the heart of those things, which is our thought life. What are we engaging mentally? And when he says whatever is this, 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 and this, what he means is Jesus. He means the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We know that's what he means because it's all he's talked about in the entire letter, right? Whatever is honorable in Jesus, think of these, whatever is just, Jesus is just. Whatever is pure, Jesus is pure. Whatever is lovely, Jesus is lovely. Whatever is commendable, only Jesus is commendable. If there's any excellence, there is Jesus, the excellent one. If there's anything worthy of praise, Christ alone. Think about these things. So we don't just say the name of Jesus like it's some abstract thing. We dwell on the characteristics of Jesus, on the actual achievement of his life, death, and resurrection. We actually look at him for who he is and what he's actually done. And this is the driver behind even wanting to go to him in prayer. You will talk to that guy. You just won't talk to the Jesus that you've made up in your mind, the one who just looks like you. He says, dwell on the true things of Christ. He says, what you've learned, received, heard, and seen in me, practice these things, and God of peace will be with you. But Paul, that's pretty arrogant, man. He's saying, copy you? Well, what would it mean to copy Paul as he's writing this letter? Get shackled up, shipwrecked, snake-bitten, persecuted, stoned, mocked, jeered, forgotten. When he says, mimic me, he says, lay down your life, your esteem. Count it all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. This is the drumbeat of Paul's life, that he counted all that he had earned for himself as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He says, look to me and my chains. Look to me and my rags practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. How do I know? Because the God of peace is with me, is what he's saying. You know, church, that gets us through our passage this morning. 
And as I think through, even now, what it looks like for me to enter into this new season of opening up the gospel account, and I want to focus on, what, on the detail of this thing here. Next week, we're going to crack open the gospel account of John. We're going to spend a long time fixing our eyes on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as told by the people who were there. Okay, we're going to get our eyes on the true things, all these things that Paul wants us to think about. We have to remember, when we preach the epistles, these are the therefores of the gospel. Paul's always saying, in light of that, just reminding people, in light of what you're going to read in the gospel account of John, this. When you read the Old Testament, just shining the glaring need for the gospel. When we read Revelation, in light of what Christ achieved in the God, life, death, and resurrection, here's what we can expect to come. It all centers back around this gospel centrality, this cultural thing that we've built this church on, but we don't want to lose the heart of it. And we simply can't engage these true things about Jesus if we don't surrender to him in a life of prayer. You must become encountered, with, you, must, you must encounter your own desperate need and fall on your face before the Father and receive the goodness of Christ for yourself in a daily active way. Or we're just playing church, ultimately. And I just pray that the Lord would forgive would forbid that. So what we're going to do again here as I wrap up is we're going to pray. I want to point something out because um, I've been actually called out a couple of times after I preach. This is the ESV Philippians, just in conclusion, guys. Sometimes you guys have been pulling me aside after I preach and be like, what are you preaching out of? Because it's a little uncomfortable sometimes if it looks like the preacher is using a different book than what you have in your hands. Uh, this is same translation as you. It's just the book of Philippians. And I come up here every week and decided to take a minute just now of vulnerability. I am terrified of public speaking. Okay, Pretty, like it's ironic, right? I hate it. And I remember a couple of years ago, I was up in uh, the pulpit and I had a cup of water on the stand here, and I guess I like picked it up to drink it like compulsively like a hundred times and never took a sip because uh, I'm super fidgety when I'm like public speaking. And afterwards, somebody said to me, uh, Adam, I didn't hear a word you said because all I could think is, is he gonna take a sip or not, right? <laughs> and so I get super fidgety because I'm nervous in the pulpit, so I don't use a pulpit anymore because like, when I have to be tethered, so I just kind of let my feet do what they do. Well, I also found that if I don't have no pulpit, I gotta hold a Bible. If I'm holding a Bible, the bigger the Bible, the weirder it is. And so I just bring the book I'm preaching and like that's it. And so it's not even like spiritual. It's literally just I'm bad at this. And I, there are other people <laughs> who can preach the gospel better than I can, but nobody can preach a better gospel, right? Because there's only one. And we can be known to one another, guys, if we can be gentle with one another and we can be actually family the way that we've talked about as we learn to just be honest before the Lord and to count him as worthy, Guys, I hope that as you look over these words for Paul, that you can get from Paul, you can look forward to the year ahead. And say, like, I want to commit to knowing Jesus like that. I want to count my life as loss. I want to pray. I want to believe he's mightier than me. I want to invite you guys to do that with me now in a responsive time of prayer, and then we're going to take communion together. But first, I'll pray over you, and then if you could grab someone near you that you love and pray with them for this.